Good morning. My name is Joe. My pronouns are he and him, and I'm glad to be with you today. Hello to those of you on Zoom. I know there's quite a few folks joining us online today also. Good to wait with you too. The day of our God will come like a thief, and on that day the heavens will vanish with a roar. The elements will catch fire and fall apart, and the earth and all its work will be destroyed in the flames. Since everything is to be destroyed in this way, what holy and devoted lives you should lead. Watch for the coming of the day of God, long for it. Because of it, the heavens will be destroyed in flames and the elements will melt away in a blaze. But what we await are new heavens and a new earth where according to God's promise, God's justice will reside. So beloved, while waiting for this, make every effort to be found at peace and without stain or defilement in God's sight. Consider our God's patience as your opportunity for salvation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is, this is a test. <laughs> How thankful are we for this one? The organizers of the lectionary rotation of scriptures have handed us a doozy this morning, the second week of Advent. Flames, destruction, the end of the world. This is a text loaded with a ton of baggage from my fundamentalist upbringing. I will try not to hand too much of that to you today. But you can imagine what this text might do in a crowd of otherwise well-meaning people when they're told that the planet we live on doesn't really matter because it's all going to dissolve and melt away soon enough. However you read it or misread it, there is an undeniable urgency in this text. This is a testament written by and for people in crisis. The day of our God will come like a thief, and on that day the heavens will vanish with a roar. The elements will catch fire and fall apart, and the earth and all its works will be destroyed in the flames. Since everything is to be destroyed in this way, what holy and devoted lives you should lead. As always, context matters. This passage comes from the second letter ascribed to Peter, friend and disciple of Jesus. To oversimplify a ton of scholarship, my best guess is that this was written sometime in the late first century, probably written in Peter's name by one of his students. And it's probably written to a Jewish audience, followers of Jesus from the Jewish tradition scattered across the Roman Empire. Those of you who have been around my sermons for a while have seen images like these a few times. This is the destruction of the Jewish temple, the famous siege and ravaging of Jerusalem by the Roman legions in the year 70. This was the defining event of the New Testament era after Jesus' death and resurrection. This was their 9-11. Everybody knew this. It shaped their culture. It defined their politics. It transformed their religion. It haunted their nightmares. The holy temple destroyed in the flames. The sacred city melted into ash. The chosen people, the holy kingdom, dissolved, fallen apart, carried away. The very heavens blotted out in the smoke of tragedy. Devastating. And again, a defining moment for generations to follow. So when this writer speaks of fire, melting, the destruction of the heavens and the earth, it's not a prediction of what's coming, it's a description. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. There it is again. 
What do you say to people who have lived through the end of their world? People who are trying to survive and perhaps rebuild or at least reimagine a new life, a new identity, a new faith. Since everything is to be destroyed in this way, what holy and devoted lives you should lead. The writer calls back to the fear and despair of the destruction of the temple and then doubles down. Everything is gonna be destroyed. It's not just one temple, one city, it's everywhere. This is the state of the world. This is everyone, not just us. All that we know as civilization, all the systems, all the empire, it's all doomed in one way or another. It's all being torn apart. Being torn apart and being remade. Don't miss that piece. This is meant to be good news. Most of us here in North America are used to seeing ourselves on top of the world. So the destruction of the world order would be pure disaster for us. A world where my people lost control, that's a world I don't want to live in. But Peter's people weren't like me. They had no power. They were on the bottom. The world was already out of their control. The Romans were in charge of everything. So a collapse of the world order, the remaking of everything, that would be chaos, but it would also be opportunity. That was the vision of the Jewish prophets for 500 years, that the end of the world as we know it will come, and that destruction is actually the tool of God's new creation. That's the longing, the expectation of this letter. There will be tragedy, but also renewal. Everything will burn, and that's the path to God's justice and peace. Happy holidays. Something to think about while you're watching your chestnuts roasting on an open fire, I suppose. Maybe this is why uh, folks used to light real candles on their Christmas tree. It's gotta keep that thrill of impending doom alive. <laughs> All of that to say, there are a lot of mixed feelings in this scripture. Fear and hope, grief and expectation, despair and desire. Looking back, looking ahead, uncertain of what's going on, trying to figure out what to do now. Our Advent materials this year suggest that this is not an unfamiliar feeling for us as well. While we may sometimes feel discouraged or uncertain about when or how God will act, like those in our scriptures, we are called to live and move in the world as God's people. Even as we wonder how long, we begin to ask, what shall we do while we wait? That's the question of Peter's letter in the first century, too. The lack of punctuation in the original written Greek versions make translation complicated. So while this translation makes it imperative, a call to action, my amateur translation sees a question mark. Since everything is to be destroyed in this way, what kind of life should you live? What kind of life would be holy and devoted? Given the frailty and uncertainty of our human lives, how do we live the day in front of us in holiness and devotion? Here at the edge, how do we live to honor the spirit of God within us? How do we do that? Don't look at me. I'm all, almost out of gas just framing the question. <laughs> the writer of 2 Peter gives this prescription. So beloved, while waiting for this, 
Make every effort to be found at peace and without stain or defilement in God's sight. That's more loaded language. Without stain or defilement, without spot or blemish in the little literal Greek. Some of us read that and hear, God demands perfection. Make every effort to be pure and spotless without fault. That's what I heard growing up. Be pure in your actions, in your mind, and in your heart. And if you can't be pure, because who can? Well, then make sure you spend every moment of every day begging for forgiveness, because you've got to wipe that slate clean all the time, just in case the worst happens. You want to be ready for that. You have to be asking for forgiveness or living in perfection if you want to be counted as clean enough to escape the fires of hell. And it is true, Peter is rather obsessed with purity. Be ye holy, because I am holy. That is who Peter, that is how Peter visioned God. But again, context. This letter is written to people who have already been through the fire. The burning, melting, and dissolving, that's refiner's fire. That's the process of purification. And they've already done that. Their faith has been tested by fire, and here they still are. So the verse says, not work harder to live purely, but you have been through the fire, you have been purified, so now live that way, live as you are. Trust that you have been, or at least are, in our being transformed. That is already happening within you. It's not about living up to some perfect external standard but it's about living out of that spirit of holiness that is already at work within you. When you live out of this spirit within, then you will be found at peace. One more Bible geek point before I try to make this practical. The word for peace here is irene. Irene meaning one, peace, quietness, rest. Down there at the bottom, from ero, to join, tie together into a whole, properly wholeness, i.e. when all essential parts are joined together. What do we do while we wait? Live in wholeness, live in relationship, bring things together, hold the pieces in right relationship. Some of you will hear echoes of the Hebrew term shalom, this is God's vision of harmony, unity, wholeness, and justice. This is who God is from the beginning to the end. This is God's project in all of creation. So the burning, breaking, dissolving around us and within us, that is happening in the service of wholeness and oneness. The undoing is part of the remaking, as Richard Rohr puts it. So while we wait for that work to bear fruit, we are invited to live now in such a way as to join in this thing of wholeness that God is already doing. I said I would try to make this practical. So two things. First, a practice of presence. Living through the end of the world as we know it is stressful. This is violent imagery. Some of us are on edge, feel that within us. Even if we're only experiencing it through metaphor, the undoing and remaking is costly. So yeah, we're gonna have feelings about this. Stress radiates through our bodies, through our spirits, our thoughts, our connections. 
Fear, worry, and anxiety are natural responses to this kind of stress. It's part of our physiological warning system. Danger, everything is burning. That's not a bad thing. This is what our feelings are meant to do. And the invitation that I hear in 2 Peter is to go underneath those feelings, to let them do their work, and then move through them to figure out how we live, to make our decisions out of the peace and wholeness that is the spirit at work within us. I've been learning how this works from a psychological perspective through a book called Living Like You Mean It by Ron Francis. One piece that I've found helpful is a practice that he calls the heart tool. We're going to listen to him talk about it, and then we'll have a chance to practice. Neuroscientist Stephen W. Porges suggests that there may be a very simple way to counter stress and calm our nerves. The key to this strategy is the vagus nerve, which is the main channel of the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system. The vagus nerve originates in the brainstem and carries signals to various parts of the body, including the heart, lungs, and intestines. It's closely involved with regulating our heart rate and breathing. Heart tool. When you're feeling anxious or fearful, take the following steps. One, place one hand in the center of your chest over your heart and breathe deeply from your abdomen. Two, call to mind moments of serenity or joy and amplify them in your imagination until you can feel their energy in every cell of your body. And three, when you feel relaxed, take a moment to sit with and appreciate this new place. Activation of the vagus nerve calms our fear response. It slows down heart rate, decreases blood pressure and promotes an overall state of relaxation. Simply placing a hand in the center of your chest over your heart can stimulate the vagus nerve and soothe the rhythms of your heart. This strategy may be especially effective if you combine it with deep breathing and visualization. You can use the heart tool to help manage any anxiety you encounter as you open up to your feelings. It's a pretty simple form of prayer. Hand on the center of your chest, breathe deeply, think about a specific memory of goodness, pay attention to what's going on in your body and in your emotions as you hold that memory close. We're gonna practice that. I'm just gonna take two minutes, I'm gonna sit down, invite you to just go ahead and, and follow those steps and we'll come back in two minutes.
pretty simple. I've found it to be helpful in all kinds of situations. You may see me doing that before I get up to speak sometimes. So now that you know, you know I'm trying to calm my nerves, not having another heart attack. Another practical way to live into God's wholeness as we wait is gratitude. Three mornings a week, I drive Leo to daycare in Evergreen. First, I drop off Sarita and Nate by Market Mall and then join the slog of traffic trying to get past all the cars and sleepy teenage jaywalkers around Holy Cross High School. By the time I finally make it up Taylor to the Circle Drive overpass, I'm usually red hot with road rage or just slumped over in exhausted resignation. But on Tuesday this week, when I finally pulled up the overpass, I saw this. How many of you saw the sunrise on Tuesday? It was spectacular, epic. Words fail me, literally stunning. Couldn't take my eyes off of it. The whole drive, it just kept going and going. Changed my whole outlook on the day. Wow. And it changed nothing outside of me. I still realized when I got to daycare that I'd forgotten Leo's diaper bag. Had to beg the daycare provider not to make me drive all the way home to get it. I was still 10 minutes late for my nine o'clock meeting. My groceries still cost way too much when I picked them up later. The war still rages in Gaza, in Ukraine. The climate crisis still worsens, speaking of the whole world melting and burning. A burst of color in the sky changes nothing. And yet, for a few minutes, I was transformed, filled with awe and wonder, awakened by the beauty, caught up in the fullness of the experience, maybe even found at peace without stain or defilement in God's sight. As the word Irene suggests, my experience of peace was not isolated but unifying. As soon as I got to daycare and stopped the van, I texted Carrie, she was at work, I sure hope you saw the sunrise. When I got to my meeting, people were just buzzing about the energy of it. They were remembering other sunrises, appreciating even the darkness of the season because we do get to have this punctuation of color for sunrise and sunset every day. As soon as my e meeting was done, I opened my emails to these photos from Ruth. Sunrise was just breathtaking today, I had to share. We are drawn together in awe and gratitude. The sunrise changed nothing, but a curtain was pulled back within and around me. My world was altered by that. Sunrise is not this visually spectacular all the time. Honestly, I didn't notice the sunrises the next day or any other day this week. And yet, the sun rises every day with beauty in some form. There is wonder everywhere, all the time, if we have eyes to see. Many of you remember Art Jansen longtime member here at Wildwood who died in 2014. Art had a major heart attack when he was in his 50s, and he lived on the edge of death for 27 years. Nine heart attacks, multiple surgeries, more time in the hospital than anyone else I've known. Art and Hilda went through it all, one day at a time. And yet Art lived every day in gratitude. At every visit, he would work his way through his list of reasons he was thankful that day, for Hilda, for his family, for the hospital staff, for the, the day, for the life that he, that he had had, the life that he was looking forward to, whatever hopes and gifts he saw in the days ahead. From what he fully expected to be his deathbed, over and over, Art led with gratitude and appreciation. I once walked into his hospital room while Art's nurse was 
in the middle of a uh, delicate medical procedure. Sorry, sorry, shouldn't be here, sorry for interrupting. Even in that moment, instead of embarrassment, Art was all smiles. Hello, pastor, thanks for coming, have a seat, how's your family? I will uh, give you a few minutes and come right back. There was always something to be grateful for. Art lived in Irene peace, even at the edge of death. That is hard to do, but I think it's available to all of us, one moment at a time. Gratitude, wonder, appreciation, connection, it's all right there in front of us. So, you may have noticed, I have not yet answered the question. We've talked about how to be while we wait, this posture of openness and gratitude, but those are attitudes, not actions. Fair point, you're a very attentive, attentive audience and I can't get anything past you. What do we do while we wait? What kind of life would be holy and devoted? It's an open question. The people of God have used, have used many approaches over the centuries. As Rick said, farmers farm, fishers fish, and so on. We've seen everything from strict rule following to freedom bordering on hedonism to our Mennonite relatives who went off into the wilderness to await Christ's immediate return to our Mennonite ancestors who tried to set up their own kingdom of heaven on earth. What shall we do while we wait? Two quotes I've been thinking about this week from fourth century St. Augustine. Love God and do whatever you please, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. It's all about attitude and posture. Right motivation leads to, brings about right action. What we do springs out of who we are. Not sure Batman fans would agree. It's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. Augustine versus Batman. There's a movie in there somewhere. This is an open question. Another favorite of mine, a mashup of several pieces from the Jewish tradition. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. Or if you prefer the Disney version of this ancient wisdom, I won't look too far ahead. It's too much for me to take, but break it down to this next breath. This next step, this next choice is one that I can make. So I'll walk through this night, stumbling blindly toward the light, and do the next right thing. It's a question for all the ages. Consider our God's patience as your opportunity for salvation, Second Peter concludes. Apparently our God is not in a hurry. Our rescue, our healing comes while we wait. There is salvation in and through the waiting. The waiting is a gift already. What we do with it, the question remains.